0: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.
1: Hello and welcome to Babbage, The Economist's weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Cukier, and coming up on today's show, a potential revolution in medical trials.
2: So you save a great deal of time and money. Real-world trials cost, some estimate it at around $40,000 per human patient, and they can take years to conduct.
1: And how great are the hidden costs of artificial intelligence? But
3: certainly not artificial, it's profoundly material. And it's also not intelligent, in the sense that we might imagine AI as being somehow autonomous or neutral or objective.
1: We'll also be announcing the winners of last week's book competition. And we have a new question for you, so keep listening to the end of the show. But first, city air is all wrong. It is dirty. According to the World Health Organization, outdoor pollution kills over 4 million people a year. It is also hot. Concrete and tarmac absorb the sun's rays, turning urban areas into what is known as heat islands. These exacerbate the dangerous heat waves that are becoming ever more frequent as the planet warms. There are plenty of man-made tricks to help here. Painting roofs and roads white, creating splash parks and overhauling air conditioning. But there could also be a natural solution to these problems.
4: This morning, I saw a bird feeding their little ones in a nest in a forest planted in the backyard of my own house, which is just one and a half years old. I can see so many different types of life coming back to this forest. My name is Shubhindu Sharma. I live in Bangalore, India, and I am founder and director of A-Forest, which is a company that helps people to make forests in their homes, in their corporate premises, factories.
1: From his backyard forest in Bangalore, Shubendu Sharma is one of a growing group of botanists and entrepreneurs who believe that the solution to keeping urban jungles cool is trees. The moment you convert
4: the pavements, the concrete spaces into these micro-forests, the heat island effect is reduced, the urban environment becomes more cooler, the humidity levels increases, means you are going to have a very pleasant environment. Trees are perfectly
5: made to tackle those problems. They're basically nature's way of dealing with pollution and heat.
1: Ilana Strauss writes about science and the environment for The Economist.
5: They take pollution in the air and they kind of trap it and bring it into the ground. The one issue is you need a lot, a lot of trees to kind of make that happen. So, for example, researchers at the University of Wisconsin discovered that urban areas need 40 percent tree cover in order to effectively cut down on urban heat. And that's actually kind of a big issue for a lot of poor and middle income countries. More than half of people live in cities right now. By 2050, that's going to be 68% of people. So this this is a pretty serious issue. A partial solution could be to create miniature forests, specifically engineered for rapid
1: growth and cooling. How do you build a miniature forest?
5: There's this guy, Dr. Miyawaki Akira. He's a plant ecologist in Japan. And over decades, he's created this method of planting these miniature forests. I interviewed Shubendu Sharma, the founder of a forest and a leading proponent of the Miyawaki method. He told me how it accelerates the
4: process of a forest maturing. You plant only the potential natural vegetation of a geography, means the vegetation, which the earth has a potential to grow on its own, but in natural succession, it may take a few hundred years for those species to come back by themselves. And in this methodology, we plant a forest that, within 10 years, starts to look like a hundred-year-old forest grown naturally.
5: One of, one of the important parts of the method is you've got to plant a lot of seeds at once, way more than you would in like an agricultural area or even in, like an, in nature. You have to plant way more seeds per meter. And then what happens is as the seeds grow up, they compete against each other for sunlight, for water, for everything. And so the fastest growing survive. A mature forest has different species than a forest that's just starting to grow. So following this method, you actually start out by planting the kind of plants that you get in a mature forest rather than waiting for it to go through kind of all these slow phases of forest growth. Mr. Sharma first encountered this method when Dr. Miyawaki came to build a tiny forest in the Toyota factory where he was an engineer.
4: My education in industrial engineering inspired me to make a standardized afforestation methodology. And following those steps, even a layman like me would be able to make a forest like a scientist and botanist like Dr. Akira Miyawaki. So this industrial approach helped us to scale the operation both in size and in terms of new geographies as well. So the Toyota principles of leveled production, where you are able to make different models of car on a single assembly line, inspired me to write an algorithm which would mix different types of trees belonging to different layers height-wise and create a simulation of how a forest should look like if they have all these species
1: mixed together. Why is it important to have a broad mix of local species?
5: So for one thing, it packs a lot more greenery into a small amount of space. So You can have like a shrub growing under the tree, getting shade from the tree, or you can have a vine growing up the tree. You can kind of have all these different plants growing in vertical space. And so you pack so many more plants into such a smaller space. The other thing is you want to plant at random rather than in rows. You want plants to actually be fighting each other for sunlight. And if you're sort of separating them out enough that they're not competing for anything, then it's just going to be a slower growing process. You want that competition. And in certain circumstances, trees can actually grow 14% faster.
1: How widespread is the Milwaukee method today?
5: It's actually pretty widespread, especially in, in Asia. So Dr. Miyawaki himself, he planted more than 1,500 of these miniature forests, first in Japan and then in other parts of the world. Uh, And Mr. Sharma's company has planted these forests in 13 different countries. And his company is just one example of a bunch of these Miyawaki method companies. If you look at India, they have really gone to town on this. Like Mumbai has planted more than 200,000 trees. Bangalore has 50,000 the Ministry of Climate Change in Pakistan says Pakistan has 126 of these forests. To a smaller extent, it's spreading throughout Europe and Latin America. And there's actually some of these in the United States and Australia, too. But it's, it's sort of exploded in lots of Asia and is kind of starting to spread
1: throughout the rest of the world. What benefits can such miniature forests bring to urban communities? For example, a recent Babbage explored the health benefits of the sounds of nature, but here it's about the trees themselves and the forest. What evidence do we have that it has a real tangible effect?
5: There are several, and not just environmental benefits. I put this question
4: to Shibendu Sharma. So the biggest benefit which we see in urban areas is the reduction of heat island effect. The second biggest benefit which I have seen is the financial, the commercial benefit. When it comes to real estate, people would like to pay more for the real estate that has greenery like these forests around it. Third would be the reduction in the cost of air conditioning. Eventually, we have been able to see number of birds and small animals like squirrels and so many other types of soil microbiology coming back to urban spaces and a forest combined with a tiny water body brings in almost everything that you would see in a wild natural forest far away from the city but when you bring the forest right in the middle of a city people are sleeping better they're breathing better and we have seen there they are much calmer you can imagine the the psychological and the, the, the physical effect of this forest on the well-being of the people. So what are some of the drawbacks of the
1: Miyawaki method?
5: I mean, the main thing is that it's really labor intensive. Over time, once you've established a forest, it's, it's great because you actually can do less work than you would before. But when you're just starting one of these forests, you need a lot of people You know, you need people planting the seeds, you need people taking care of the plants, people researching what plants to plant and gathering all the, you know, all the materials.
1: And what about in densely packed cities where there's not a lot of unused land?
5: There are cities that are really densely packed that don't have huge spaces where you can just plant a forest. Uh, But even in places like that, I don't think there's a whole lot of cities that have zero unused land, you know, like even if you think about it, like areas between the sidewalk and the street or kind of little corners, like you can pack a lot of greenery into a small amount of space.
1: So realistically, we're still talking about micro scale projects here, aren't we? Could the Milwaukee method be adopted for large scale reforestation?
5: Not really. <laughs> uh, it's, it's really labor intensive and it's expensive, especially at least compared to nature's natural process. What you really just need is to leave large areas alone and they'll naturally turn back into forests. That actually happened in the East Coast a lot. That being said, they are using this in some areas of the Amazon. If you are trying to get a really specific thing going really fast, Uh, that can be useful in kind of rural areas. But that's not to say it's not incredibly useful, because when you're talking about human health, that's what you want. You want to green
1: cities. This is great. It beautifies the city, means we're less stressful, and we also have cleaner air. Sounds like a great win.
5: Yeah, it feels to me a lot like the modern version of 19th century movements that brought city parks and all their health benefits to the West. The purpose is kind of the same as before, you bring nature into the city, but of course the means are completely different and they're much more in tune with our times.
1: Ilana Strauss, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. And our thanks to Shubendu Sharma. Heat waves are becoming an ever greater threat to the planet. To find out more about why they are so dangerous and what can be done about them, subscribe to The Economist. For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Don't forget to tell them Ken sent you. But you should also check out the latest episode of another one of our shows, The World Ahead. It considers what would happen if a deadly heatwave hit India. That's The World Ahead from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. Next up, clinical trials are expensive. They can cost tens of thousands of dollars per patient. If a trial reveals problems, which many do, the process has to begin again, often over the course of years. But redesigning clinical trials by running them as computer simulations has the potential to save time and money. It could also encourage innovation and even save lives.
2: Medical trials at present are carried out in one of two ways, either in vitro, which is on cells in a Petri dish, or in vivo, which is in live subjects, whether animal or human. Gilad Amit is the economist science correspondent. Both have their pros and cons. In vitro is safe, but is very far removed from a real-life situation, whereas in vivo is more realistic, but carries higher risks. The third option, in silico, Uh, is to conduct experiments and trials on virtual models of real human beings. What is a virtual model? A virtual model of the body or of a part of the body is one that is acquired from imaging. You would, for example, in order to produce a virtual model of the brain, you would take scans of how the blood uh, flows in the brains of, of real patients and you would then create a computer program that is capable of replicating that behavior by inputting the laws of physics and the way that the blood flows and the size of the vessels. And researchers at Leeds University in the last few weeks have successfully pioneered the most comprehensive such trial yet.
1: What was the trial for
2: and how did it go? What they were testing was the effectiveness of devices called intracranial flow diverters which are basically like mini stents. What they do is they go into blood vessels in the brain and they prevent the walls of the vessels from bulging and from accumulating blood. The risk in these situations is that the vessel can burst uh, leading to what's called a hemorrhagic stroke. So these intracranial flow diverters were tested by creating virtual versions of them and placing them in detailed three-dimensional scans uh, from the brains of, of, of volunteers. And the results fit very neatly with those of trials conducted in the real world. So the in silico trial
1: came to the same conclusions as the recent in vivo ones, is that right?
2: That's right, yes, and that's what makes this particular test a big advance. Previous in silico trials have been conducted, but they haven't fit so neatly with the real-world validation.
1: How much do you save by doing it in this way, and how do we know the technique actually works?
2: So you save a great deal of time and money. Real-world trials cost, some estimate it, at around $40,000 per human patient, and they can take years um, to, to conduct. The uh, in-silico trials of the kind in this paper are considerably cheaper and can be done in months. And in order to know that it works, you have to conduct experiments of the kind that the team at Leeds did. You try and recreate high quality clinical trial that was conducted in the real world in silico, and then you compare the results. And this can validate the successfulness of your technique, because if you get the same result, It shows that the in silico trial accurately reflects the biology.
1: Now, we have had computer simulations for a long time. So why did it take so long to do clinical trials in this way?
2: I'd say there are two major reasons. The first is that you need to have really accurate models of whatever comparatively small scale thing you're looking at. Models of the entire human body and the way every one part of it affect any other part of it don't yet exist. So you need to pick your area very carefully where blood flow in the brain can be modeled very accurately. That doesn't necessarily apply elsewhere. And secondly, evidence derived from in silico trials still isn't accepted um, by regulators as evidence to approve a treatment, which means that there is more interest in validating them than in conducting the trials for the moment.
1: Don't we really want to keep real trials because life is so complex and all of our models are just gross cartoon versions of what we think the real thing is? There's more under heaven and earth than is in our philosophy, so it's essential to have
2: real patients? You're absolutely right. Real patients will never disappear from the clinical trial landscape. The real goal is to streamline uh, how many clinical trials on real patients need to be conducted. These trials can be very expensive. They can cost tens of thousands of dollars per patient. Many lead to failure and result in a lot of money being lost. So if clinical trials conducted in silico can let you cut the number of real patients you need to conduct tests on, and if they allow you, for example, to stop conducting tests on animals, which is a a widely held goal by medical researchers, then they can provide a real benefit without being the only source of evidence.
1: Now tell me more about the innovation that we can get by putting the clinical trial into silico. What's more to play for?
2: Clinical trials, as they are, have many shortcomings. They're the best system that we have at present, but the people who enroll are rarely representative of the population at large, many minority groups are not represented and there isn't sufficient data collected about them, and the ethical guidelines about how you conduct them prevent you from collecting lots of really valuable data of various kinds. So being able to conduct these trials in silico really expands the remit and hopefully makes them fairer and more representative. Gilad, always great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ken.
1: Now, if you listened to last week's show, you'll have heard the mathematician Jordan Ellenberg talking about his new book, Shape. He offered a free copy of the book to the lucky listener who best answered the question, what thing in the world is the wrong shape and why? we received nearly a hundred fantastic replies they included the keyboard the calendar buildings they should be built as pyramids lego bricks because stepping on them is so painful electrical plugs circular pizzas and square pizza boxes and artwork which should be circular so pictures hung on the wall never need to be straightened an honorable mention also goes to the many people who suggested that global wealth distribution is the wrong shape and suggested policies to distribute it more evenly. But the finalists are Pamela Chua from Manila in the Philippines who wrote The Letter W. Can we reshape it to reflect its name, a double U UU, or just rename it? Priyanka Batachargi in Melbourne, Australia, who wrote that a star is always drawn wrong as a geometrical shape. Elnet Moller in Pretoria in South Africa says, What should have a different shape is the layout of a school classroom. A more circular shape would give a more interactive atmosphere and make the environment feel less strict. And Will Burns in Leeds in Britain, who wants to reshape flags and move towards flag patterns in the shape of the country's national animal. I like the idea of an Olympic Games with Serbian wolves and South African Springbok and the American Eagles being waved in the crowd. However, the winner selected by Jordan himself is drumroll. The human head! As he explained to me, quote, it's the one answer that most made me say, damn, that's a good point. Now, two listeners suggested it. Christopher Kirby in Wawa, Ontario, Canada, who's a doctor, and he wrote, The amount of adaptation required to compensate for the risky birth of this faulty object is significant. The second winner is Roland Stevens of Sydney, Australia, who suggested an alternative form for the head, conical. Both of them will receive a copy of Jordan's new book. And we thank everyone for their brilliant entries. And keep listening, because we have another book giveaway at the end of this week's show. Good luck! And finally, artificial intelligence has brought innumerable benefits to humankind, from automation to complex problem-solving. But as with any form of technology, there are also costs. The question is how humanity can best manage those costs and make them worth it. In a new book, The Atlas of AI, Kate Crawford, the founder of the AI Now Institute and a professor at USC Annenberg, traces the supply chains required to develop this technology and argues that artificial intelligence is neither artificial nor intelligent. I began our conversation by asking her why.
3: Well, if we think about the way that AI is commonly presented, for example, if you just do an image search on artificial intelligence right now, you'll see rows and rows and rows of images of code and numbers and men with glasses looking off into the middle distance and lots of white robots. But what you won't see is anything about how AI is actually made. And of course, it's a profoundly material technology. It relies on enormous amounts of energy and mineral resources, cheap labor and data at scale. So it's certainly not artificial. It's profoundly material. And it's also not intelligent in the sense that we might imagine AI as being somehow autonomous or neutral or objective, it actually requires enormous amounts of computationally intensive training and a series of predefined rules and rewards, and in many ways is actually completely unlike human intelligence. It is, in other words, statistical analysis at scale, which of course can be useful, but is very different from the sort of nuance and capacity and agility that we associate with human intelligence.
1: So what's then the problem is it just a naming problem is just the term AI a bad name but there's something great going on under the hood?
3: Well I do think the name is a trap because it it has you know certainly since the 1950s I think resulted in a type of original sin in the field where people equate this idea of a human mind with these systems, which are essentially large-scale computational systems, the way in which we assume that these systems are actually neutral agents that can help us make decisions in very sensitive social institutions like criminal justice or healthcare or education. There are multiple problems here in terms of the capacities that we might imagine that AI has
1: you refer to the, in the book as ai being an extractive industry wouldn't that simply attach to the economy more broadly, since all things in the economy that have materiality require energy and require resources?
3: Well, it's interesting where AI is is very similar to, say, other large-scale industries and where it's different. Certainly, the areas where a very AI particular is its relationship to data and the fact that it requires an enormous amount of data that is being extracted from all of the devices that we use every day. But in order to power that large extraction of data, It's actually met with an enormous extraction of energy and mineral resources and water all along the supply chain. And certainly over the last five years, we've seen AI systems become more and more energy intensive and more compute hungry. We've certainly seen that with the creation of, say, for example, large learning models, things like GPT-3, that uses deep learning to produce human-like text. Huge amounts of compute is is required for these things. It requires so much energy. So if you will, the new forms of data mining are built upon the forms of mining from previous centuries.
1: Sure, but it doesn't really attach to AI per se. It simply attaches to computing, and computing is extractive insofar as it relies on natural resources, not unlike farming is extractive because if you have a tractor, it needs steel and it also needs petrol. So I guess I'm wondering, is the argument against AI being extractive, truly unique to AI? Or is it just simply we live in an economy that uses natural resources to power what it does? Well, let's take a
3: specific example like computer vision. So the way that computer vision has really advanced over the last 10 years is through creating these Vast training data sets that in some cases have many millions, sometimes billions of images. So you think about the type of resources that it takes to train an AI system on that amount of data. That is actually different to the sorts of models that we had of personal computing as recently as 15 years ago. So there is a shift here, and I think the shift is far more significant than is generally written about.
1: In discussions of AI for good, it often comes down to debates about ethics and enforcing ethical codes. What do you think would be more fruitful? In your writing, you often talk about the issue of power rather than ethics.
3: Just over the last three years, hundreds of ethical codes have been released for AI. There have been principles, there have been uh, best practices, there has been a Hippocratic Oath. But what we don't have is anything to actually enforce these principles. So here is where I think we need a turn to consider power in artificial intelligence, which is to say, who benefits most from these systems and who is harmed? When we actually look much more closely at certainly who is being enriched by these systems, how we're seeing widening power asymmetries, and how we're certainly seeing the downsides being experienced most by people who are marginalized already in society, we can see the ways in which AI systems, in fact, centralize and amplify existing forms of power.
1: So what do we do about that? And let me actually zoom in on one of the examples that you point out, this idea of a Hippocratic Oath for AI. Just last week, the WHO published a new ethical framework for using AI in medicine and healthcare. So what do you think? Is this profound and good or is this completely pointless what would work instead the more that we start to really
3: assess how ai systems work the better and by considering a hippocratic oath for ai in medicine we can begin to ask the question how do we ensure that these systems do no harm but certainly in the way that that oath is is currently being understood it's really just asking medical practitioners to ensure that they're using these systems in ways that will ensure access by the greatest number and that these systems aren't directly causing forms of harm. But what it doesn't do is think about the ways in which these systems can be producing a differential impact. So take, for example, so much of our medical data, by which we use to try and understand if a drug might be appropriate for a particular condition, has built within it particular forms of gender and racial biases, depending on who this system was first tested on. AI systems reflect the data of the past. So we need something, I think, far more granular and specific that allows us to much more closely audit these systems to
1: actually test who they're working for and where they might be failing us. So as a solution, as the answer, I suppose society should discontinue all artificial intelligence. Not at all. Uh, And indeed, we actually need a far more nuanced
3: understanding of where AI can be useful and where it is not useful. Certainly what we've seen over the last decade is almost a type of technological inevitability. If it can be built, it will be, and we should all use it. And I do not believe we can afford that any longer. And what we do need, first of all, is much stronger regulation. And we are starting to see moves in that direction. Certainly, we're seeing now in the EU some very interesting draft proposals for regulating AI. It's, in fact, the first omnibus bill that has been suggested for AI regulation. And the US is very much behind the dance at this point and has has quite a long way to go to catch up. But that regulatory gap is something that urgently must be addressed. But there's something else to consider here too, which is where does AI actually work well and where doesn't it work? And what that might mean is that we start to say... There are areas where this shouldn't be applied, that there are some places where AI is actually corrosive to civil society.
1: Kate, always great to talk to you. Absolute pleasure, Ken. For the chance to win a copy of Kate Crawford's Atlas of AI, we have a new question for listeners, forcing you to use both your left and right hemispheres, the analytical and creative mind. Pencils at the ready. The question is, what one thing will humans always do better than AI? Send your answers to radio at economist.com. I can't wait to read your ideas. Good luck. In the meantime, thank you for listening to Babbage. If you like us, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It makes a huge difference. The producers are the spectacular Abisoye Oshindairo, Juliet Jabkiro, and Emiko Shortino-Noland. Nico Ralfast is our sound engineer, and the editor is Sandra Schmueli. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, pronouncing everyone's name correctly, this is The Economist.